Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. It's Tuesday, April 26, 2022. Well, uh, I'm remote in the studio, and um, we're going to be talking with the craft beer scene in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Um, we're going to go around the room and introduce a couple guests and uh, see where this goes. So let's start with Ryan. Hey, yeah, Ryan Brower here from Gear Patrol. I'm our senior commerce editor. Uh, I cover all of our uh, beer coverage as well. Uh, Glad to be back on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jimmy. Man, it's always great having you, Ryan. Thanks for. We have a lot to talk about today. Mm-hmm. And sh- and Sean. Hey everyone, my name is Sean Towers. I am uh, one of the brewers and owners of the Seed, a living beer project in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Uh, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Great. So Ryan, I, I always look forward to to doing shows with you. I know that you're definitely a a beer fan, and you used to live pretty close to Roberta's in Bushwick. So. Um, it, it was easier for you to come over to the studio. Yeah. But um, you reached out about uh, this brewery. So tell us about the seed and, and why you thought they'd be interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, my, my friend Nico was the first to kind of put me on it. I was still living um, in, in Brooklyn at the time, and he did a big piece on, on you guys, Sean, for hop culture. Um, and uh, I had a conversation with him, and I was just really excited by that. Um, you know, the seeds, you know, and Sean, your dedication to uh, mixed fermentation. Uh, I think it's something that as someone who's from South Jersey myself and grew up here and, you know, got was fortunate enough to live in Brooklyn for almost a decade uh, right across the street from Grimm. Uh, you know, I, I, I was a very fortunate person to be ha- have all that at the tip of my fingers um, and, and the, the evolution of what was going on there. So to see uh, a brewery like that uh, kind of open up in, in kind of, you know, my home area, uh, I think was really exciting because it, it's always felt like maybe New Jersey is, you know, in terms of whether it's food or, or fashion or culture or beer, always maybe a couple years behind uh, New York City when it comes to trends. So um, it, it, it got me excited that, okay, maybe we're in the next, next wave of uh, craft breweries kind of you know, hitting New Jersey and, and thinking outside the box and not just IPA, IPA, IPA. Wow. That's, that's a great intro, Ryan. So Sean, tell us about the seed. I mean, it's you and you have a partner, you know, a little bit about your backgrounds because you're, you're both uh, interesting people. I think so. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. Uh, yeah. So the seeds kind of like the, the passion project turned brewery for my wife, Amanda and myself. Amanda's been brewing professionally for about 10 years, almost exactly now. Um, she got her start in the industry with Tucko Brewing Company before they went through their expansion, another small brewery down here in South Jersey. All her backgrounds in anthropology and sociology, actually, um, and my backgrounds in the hard sciences. So um, my schooling and training is in marine biology and microbiology. So I actually still manage um, an aquaculture research lab focusing on shellfish lines for the aquaculture industry for Rutgers University. Um, but through my schooling and my training, I gained a lot of skill set in QAQC work, um, kind of what Ryan led into before with our, our passion and focus on mixed culture beers. It all kind of lent hand in hand to be working on yeast-driven, fermentation-driven, biologically-driven beers. So through... My time early on in the industry, formally helping folks do some QAQC work, um, checking for potential barrel infections, looking at potential uh, new strains for fermentation, and through Amanda's time in the industry, brewing and learning um, on a variety of scales, we really built a, a kind of a passion and a clear focus on what we wanted to get out of the brewing industry and what we wanted to be able to share with folks through that industry. And the seeds kind of the the baby of uh, of that last decade of growth, pretty much. So your your tagline is what is it? Liquid tied to the land. Um, 
What what kind of beers you're making? I think Ryan said that you um you you have an unusual selection of beers, and how are you able to, you know, keep that focus since so many people are doing hazy IPAs? Yeah, so we actually do hazy IPAs too. It's just not the 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 larger part of the breadth of our portfolio. Um, it's kind of funny, like we all think in today's world this is out of the box, but I I really feel like we're brewing more in the box traditional beers. Um, we, we opened the brewery with a Cezanne ethos in mind. Um, and I, I use that term ethos a lot because Amanda and I don't really view Cezanne as a beer style, at least in the way that we approach it. So for us, Cezanne means like what the root of the word is, like season, brewing with the season, brewing with what's available at that time. Um, our portfolio is typically leaning towards uh, lower ABV balanced drinkable beers because that's what we want to be consuming. We we built this brewery with a focus on what we want to do. Um, maybe this is a bad business decision, but not necessarily with what the hype trends were on the market at the time. We were able to do a little bit of those other beers with other breweries, um, but we were never really able to see what I'll call our world of beer, really meaning local grain beer, whether that's Saison or Lager, uh, through the way that we thought it should be done properly. So you will always find at the seed kind of one of four thresholds of beer. Saison is certainly one of them, just really meaning mixed culture, yeast-driven beers. Um, you'll always find lager. Our lager portfolio has actually grown a bit more quickly than I thought it would, um, which is really funny from a build-out perspective. We built a Saison brewery, which is kind of just bare bones, not set up to do much else. And we wind up just making a ton of lager, which probably would have commanded more of a dedicated system for, but we make it work. Um, and then the last two are typically um, kind of traditionally leaned British pub beers, uh, English Dark Milds, Pub Ale, Ordinary Bitter, and the like, and hoppy beer. We do certainly enjoy making hazy beer, making hoppy beer, making kind of soft, flavorful, hop-forward beers. But again, trying to keep everything within like you mentioned, that focus of Cezanne, which means local ingredients and embracing natural variability and not trying to homogenize things consistently. Wow, that's great. I'm going to make you repeat that at the end, too. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, Ryan, like you, you you're, you're down in the area near Atlantic City. Um, other than, you know, through Nico, our friend in Brooklyn, uh, how have you, like, experienced the seed? Have you been to the, the brew pub? Are you getting a product to take away? you know yeah yeah um so i was actually just there this weekend uh on sunday um had a nice little pale ale uh i think it was the um which was it uh what's the pale ale you guys have on tap right uh, now Sean? first root yes yes first root that was it um and then uh right now i'm drinking uh as simple as patterns uh a spelt lager um with uh rabbit hill craft malt uh which is New Jersey's uh, premier malter, I would say. Um, and yeah, so we, I, I've gotten to go there a handful of times. Um, I moved back down to New Jersey um, last September. So I was really excited to kind of, you know, it was a time where um, I think, Sean, you guys had started to have people in the brewery um, at some point last year in 2021. So I knew I was really excited to come and and check it out, um, and kind of just spend some time there, uh, you know, stocked up pretty health healthily, uh, on Sunday. So, um, it's, uh, it's in a neat little area of, uh, Atlantic city too. And I'm sure you can talk about this a little bit more, Sean, but kind of off route 30 there, uh, you know, one of the main, main highways into Atlantic city, uh, there's an axe throwing, uh, bar next door. I believe there's a <laughs> distillery, uh, next door as well, uh, somewhere. Um, so it's kind of something that feels like there's a little bit of revitalization going on and you guys are kind of in the middle of that, right? Yeah. It's been one of the neat things for us. We never really had our targets set on Atlantic city as a location and the unit that we're in now kind of just fell into our laps. Amanda had quit. Um, the last brewery she was with at the time, and we knew that we wanted to move forward with our own project. And like you mentioned, there is a distillery next door behind us, uh, Little Water. We were actually just at Little Water having a cocktail, kind of just mellowing out and deciding where our path was going to take us now that she had left her job. 
and it was just by absolute happenstance um, that Mark, the owner at Littlewater, said that the unit next door was still vacant and being held for actually another brewery that was supposed to come in from out of state that didn't pan out. So we met with the landlord, we walked through, and things snowballed rather quickly from there. Um, and, and like you said, there's there's a neat little revitalization going on in Atlantic City, which has made it so welcoming and reassured our decision to kind of set our roots there. When we first went for our variance hearing to approve the space for brewery production, um, there were five variances, or six, I should say, variances that were heard that day. One of them was residential, but the other five were new small business coming into Atlantic City. So I think we caught it in a really lucky time where there's a big uptick in the culinary scene, the art scene, the music scene in Atlantic City um, that gives you a whole breadth of things to do that aren't involving gambling. Um, not to discount that, I think it's a great thing or a lot of people are super into it, but you could go for a weekend or an entire week and bounce around to different restaurants, you know, brewery, obviously, distillery, there's plenty of stuff to do that doesn't include the main boardwalk, which I think yeah. is helpful for but you, you can also, I mean, I, I tell you, my main time in Atlantic City is that I take the two-hour bus from, from New York City <laughs> in, at Port Authority, or my, my daughter's taking it from Philadelphia. And I know if you get a round trip, it's it's less than $40. So, um, you know, if you're, and you're in New York and you want to go to Atlantic City for the day or a quick overnight, you can get a round trip ticket for nothing. Um, it's kind of fun. It's like a gateway city. You know, I think about cities like, I was talking about New Jersey a little bit. So for me... I don't know too much about uh, New Jersey craft beer, although I do know Carton really well. So I, I guess I know everything about New Jersey, right? <laughs> I love those guys. And I remember I had Kane on a long time ago. And I've, I've been to, I was at Cape May Brewing when they first opened the first year. But, um, you know, I think about these towns like Asbury Park. You know, how does Atlantic City feel compared to, you know, these other places that, that people are going. Cause I, I really, to me, it was like Atlantic city was a bus stop and um, I, I never really spent any other time there. Yeah, for sure. And it's interesting that you bring up Asbury park because I think a lot of the same uh, real estate development group that's helped the, the turnaround revitalization, whatever you want to call it of Asbury is doing a similar thing, or they're a piece of the puzzle in Atlantic city as well. So you're starting to see a few of the restaurants, a few of the bars, um, from Asbury opening second locations in Atlantic City. So I think it's actually following quite a similar trajectory at this point, which might make a lot of sense. I mean, they're both short towns in New Jersey um, that have this kind of grand opportunity. I think it's been an interesting growth and ebb and flow, for lack of a better term, in Atlantic City because the casinos have always driven so much of what that city is and i think they will in perpetuity it's just the the nature of the belly of the beast of how the city's been built um so i think it's fun to have these kind of ancillary things pop up that can be the focal point if people want it to be but they don't have to be yeah so back back to your beer um then i'm gonna let ryan ask you some good questions too because i love working with ryan um you know you're you're a background marine biologist and and then uh your your wife Amanda's background as a brewer, um, just tell us the story of of maybe one beer that you guys worked on together, or somehow that you know you 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 gave a lot of input into. Yeah, certainly. Um, I think just because it's so fresh in our mind, one beer that we continually reblend is called Poetry in Motion. So it's inspired by Beer de Coupage, which traditionally was like young saison for lack of a better term that was um most in most cases blended with mature barrel stock um which could typically be spontaneous beer or lambic back in, uh in europe and we kind of draw inspiration from that and it's kind of a core value of what we do is incorporating the old and the new taking a lot of um lessons from winemaking from kind of old world european brewers so Poetry in Motion, uh, again, is our Beer de Coupage-inspired Saison. We brew um, we brew like fresh, young, hoppy, stainless steel fermented Saison, single yeast strain, non-mixed culture. And once the beer is finished, each time we will pick a single uh, oak barrel, single mature oak barrel to blend at either a one to four old to new or a one to five old to new ratio that goes through then an extended bottle and keg conditioning period until the beer is ready. Um, so poetry in motion is actually something that my late grandmother 
used to say when she watched me play sports, I played basketball my entire life growing up. <laughs> um, so everything we do at the brewery is used really to tell our story. Um, we kind of use beer as the medium to tell our story. So for me, I, I always tell people that I feel like I'm very creative, but I don't have a lot of outlets because I'm not good at drawing. I'm not good at painting, singing, you name it. Um, so for me, personally, beer is a way that I can share that story with folks. So we try to keep it as close to the family as possible. So like the words on the front of the poetry in motion bottle are actually my grandmother's handwriting. Um, and that beer is blended different every time. And that speaks kind of volumes to what we try to do as a brewery, like I mentioned earlier, embracing variability rather than trying to streamline it or make it cookie cutter. Um, so this is, we just blended actually our third batch of poetry in motion. Each one has been a slightly different base beer. Um, every, every, every single Saison we do is hundred percent New Jersey grown in malted grains from Rabbit Hill Farms. Um, so these base beers, the clean hoppy Saison is all Rabbit Hill Mall. We're using a mix now, actually this third batch is the first time we're influxing some aged hops into the clean side. And then we're, again, we're picking a single mature oak barrel. It's, it might be a little acidic. It might be more yeast or Brett forward. Um, but it's just going to kind of need to play off of whatever that base beer character is screaming at us at the moment. So it was actually a bit of a fortuitous blend. This last time we always taste our barrels blind. So there's no preconceived notions or pushes to pick one way or another. And the barrel we chose for this third blend of Poetry in Motion, um, the barrel's name, we, we name all our barrels just for us to keep track of them better, is Ellie, which is also my grandmother's name. So this is a pretty special blend, this third one. All these beers are very dry, very yeast-driven, uh, very grassy, rustic, uh, hint of acidity. We try to keep our beer's acid profile uh, as low as possible and balanced, so it's kind of a background sensation rather than an upfront flavor which I don't mean to get off on a tangent. That was one of the funniest things we battled when we were first opening is everyone said, oh yeah, the seed, you're the sour brewery, right? And I always had to correct people politely, hopefully. <laughs> um, I hate the term sour beer because to me it doesn't really mean anything. But these poetry in motion batches are a nice way for us to do these really nice, clean baseline levels of acid and a real yeast forward and grain forward beer. Wow. We're going to go back to that. So Ryan, um, you're lucky. This is a brewery not too far from you. And uh, what else do you want to say about it? I know you got a bunch of questions for Sean. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll just say, you know, kind of tailing off that, that I, I've had the first two versions of Poetry in Motion, and they, they were both delightful. Um, it, it really is. Uh, I, I, I don't. I, I think sometimes that. Um, you know, like I said, having grown up in New Jersey, like this is not necessarily the uh, level of craft beer that we're always getting. And it's, it's, it's New Jersey is a very like heavy, hazy IPA place, um, which is great. Like there's a lot of great beer in New Jersey and I'm, I'm not saying that there's not, but um, what Sean and Amanda are doing, it's kind of like this, I guess you could almost call it like a third wave of craft beer um, in New Jersey, and it's starting to infuse some of these other styles and mindsets that I think, like you said, Sean, it's not necessarily like thinking outside the box. It's utilizing these old styles um, that are tried and true and tested and kind of bringing them to the forefront again for people, uh, which maybe they haven't had a lot of access at. Uh, previously, you know, you go you go to any New York City brewery, you're probably going to find a saison or 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 something along those lines. Um, whereas that's not necessarily the case in New Jersey. You know, I think yourselves, Troon, referend for the the brief time we had them uh, before they are not uh, of this state necessarily anymore. So um, I'm curious as to your thoughts on on kind of like maybe this like third wave of New Jersey uh, beer and and how you're kind of you know, interacting with that consumer who, you know, I, I know there's a lot of beard nerds who do come to you and seek you out. Uh, and that's probably the easy, the easy sell, but a customer who maybe is just like, you know, there were times this winter, I came in a couple of times, you didn't have a single IPA on tap, which I love, you know, but like, I wonder how you, how that conversation goes maybe with the typical like New Jersey uh, craft beer drinker, I guess. Yeah, I could, I mean, very, 
correctly say that you are certainly still in the minority of folks that love when we don't have IPAs on tap. So we do. Uh, <laughs> we are obviously running a business, and this isn't fully a hobby at this point. So we try not to do that to the best extent possible, especially because we still love making hoppy beer. But yeah, I think that really speaks to what we're trying to push. And to your point, um, we knew that education was going to be a huge component of what we're trying to do. Um, we were kind of lucky enough to be exposed to that a little bit early on with some of the other breweries we worked with. Like when we were first starting to mess around with our own beer at Tuckahoe back at their old location that Ludlam Island now occupies, uh, Amanda and I did a small series of beers that we would release just in the tasting room at basically a homebrew scale that were weird. We were using Brett and other wild yeasts. We were doing relatively traditional styles um in our own kind of jest um and and we knew we would have to explain that to people and that's kind of part of the fun of what we do and part of what we knew would be a large component of what we were getting ourselves into um i think to touch on your other point quickly in the quote-unquote third wave of beer in new jersey um i think new jersey is a case study and difficulty in legislation, which um, I'm not going to dive down that rabbit hole during this conversation. <laughs> but I think we're finally at a point where you've got owners of breweries that are also the brewers and also driving the focus and the story. And I think for too long, that wasn't the case. So like when you bring up Troon, like Alex is at the helm of that, no joke intended. Um, when you bring up <laughs> Referend, like James and Melissa were at the helm of that. Um, talk about what Kane's doing with their field and Oak program with mixed culture mm-hmm. beer. Like Logan was basically given full reign. Logan Rice does a fantastic job with these beers and he's researched them and learned for years how to make them the way he wants. Um, but you finally have owners of breweries that are steering the ship. And I think for a long time that either wasn't the case. Um, I think you had a lot of money in New Jersey that saw that, you know, again, quote unquote, craft beer is cool. Craft beer is hot. You can make a pretty penny real quick, which obviously isn't the case. Um, Maybe not so obviously. So it's not the case. Um, (laughs) I think now the door has been opened enough where there's some baseline work done and there's been at least a little bit of leniency in what we can do as brewers in the state where you've got some folks that are actually passionate and have a clear focus that are allowed to be running the business and the branding and the story as well as the production of the beer. Like when Amanda and I first started at Tuckahoe, it was very shortly after we were even allowed to serve beer to drink on site at a brewery in New Jersey. I mean, for a while you could have four, four ounce samples as a tasting and then you could have beer to go. And that was the extent of what you were allowed to consume. And it feels like a long time ago, but that was, you know, barely, a decade ago. So I think a lot has changed over the last decade that's allowed um, New Jersey to start to get closer to catching up to the curve. It's a, it's a weird world here when you, I think Jimmy and Ryan, both of you mentioned this, like we're sandwiched right in between Philadelphia and New York city. We're sandwiched between Mm -hmm. two of the most prominent beer cities in the country, let alone, you know, possibly known worldwide. And we are just been so far behind. So I think it's, taken some time and some change from a regulation standpoint to allow us to start to get to that point. Well, that, that's a great intro. I'm going to ask, go back to the sour beer. Um, you said not sour beers. I, I totally agree with you. For me, when you hear a sour beer, it does not do anything for me. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, let's talk more about what we should be saying instead of sour beer or, you know, how you measure things, you know, Obviously, you're a scientist, you know, fermentation's magic, but to you, it's not magic. <laughs> so let's, let's, let's dive into this. You know, yeasts, biology, this is a big part of beer, and we don't usually too often get scientists who are working in breweries. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's funny, though, because my background is so heavily in hard sciences. When we built the brewery out, we set aside a room for our lab. Um, I moved an incubator that I owned all over we had, you know, all the lab gear and suite of equipment that we needed planned, um, but we just needed to start brewing. We didn't have it in place yet. And as soon as we started brewing, um, I kind of put my blinders on and threw that all out the window. So we actually don't even have a lab at the brewery right now. We don't do cell counts. Um, this might kind of sound ridiculous coming from a scientist, but we, we kind of <laughs> do everything by feel at this point. 
Um, and I'd like to think in a fanciful world that speaks to our Cezanne approach to everything. Um, you know, when these brewers in Northern France, Southeastern Belgium were brewing beer on a farm that we now know as kind of Cezanne or the origins of Cezanne, they didn't, they weren't doing yeast counts. They weren't planning on any of that. Um, so as far as sour beer goes, like we don't, we don't do TA, we don't do titratable acidity. Um, we don't actually even measure the pH of our finished beer when it's mixed culture beer. We're actually way more scientific with our clean beer because we, we need to be, because we need, we know we have specs that we're trying to hit. Um, but with our saisons uh, and our mixed culture beer, it's completely by taste. And that's something we've always drawn a lot of inspiration and looked up to from the Lambic blenders in Belgium is like making wort and producing these this sugar solution to a spec is one thing um and if you're trained well enough to do that it should happen uh there's sh there really shouldn't be much art to that that's mostly science um to me the magic really comes in in the blending and making the flavors and really just driving and using sensory to decide how how that beer is going to be presented um but to get back to the sour comment or question uh, it's it's funny. It's almost an impossible question. I think there's actually a big panel that Amanda and I were both a part of um, at the Craft Brewers Conference several years ago with how how we present the terminology for these mixed culture beers or kettle sour beers to the consumer. So there's less confusion. And uh, admittedly, there's there's quite a bit of back and forth, maybe even a little argument, and not much that came out of that. I think everyone has a different focus, and everybody has a different idea on how they want to market and sell their beer. So there's no real clear answer to that. I think in today's world, when I hear sour beer, I just, for right or for wrong, I always just, my mind goes directly to over-fruited, non-fermented out, back-end fruit kettle sours. Um, so to me, sour beer in association with our brand um, carries a little bit of a negative connotation because that's not what we're trying to do. And those aren't the kind of beers that we're trying to, portray to people how does like i noticed you went to a bunch of festivals um shout out to um good word brewing i know you were down there but I, you, did you also go to a festival at crooked run fermentation yeah that was actually just past, with jake yeah that was this past weekend it was phenomenal so uh jake and lee and the whole team at crooked run uh put on propagation festival this was the second go around of that so they expanded a, a little bit this year now that some of the uh covid regulations or concerns have been become a little more lenient um so it was such a killer lineup of brewers that we were down there with and the entire idea of the festival was to focus on beers that were not necessarily typical of the highlight or what what breweries would highlight at your standard i'll say beer festival so they didn't really set hard limits on what styles or abvs we were allowed to bring but they I guess based on the curation of the list of brewers that were there, they just assumed that it would be a mixed culture, saison, um, natural or low intervention or no intervention wine and natural cider heavy lineup. And I think that's all that wound up being there. So we brought one of our local grain dark lagers down and we also brought um, our new lightly dry hopped saison called and the stars danced in unison down. And it was such an awesome mix of lager and mixed culture beer from some of our favorite makers around the country, which is always so nice to see. These little catered festivals really give us as brewers and owners a chance to meet up with old friends mate, and you know meet new friends and actually get to talk in a setting that's basically built to drive conversation around the focus of these beers that we want to be making. Yeah, no, I, I've interviewed with Jake a couple of times. And um, since you said you don't like to say sour beer, were there other names or branding words that were used uh, by some some of these producers for a, a sour type beer? Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. Um, I Crooked Run released a. I actually don't know if they released it this past weekend, but they did like a goose inspired blend of a few years of spontaneous beer that they were just calling you know spontaneous or wild ale. Um, Forest and Maine had some beer down there, and they are obviously the believe in saison group like they are saison driven but a lot of their beers have some acidity they had a cool ship beer down there as well um that was certainly had some acid to it but not called a sour beer um i 
I'm trying to remember, at least to the best of my knowledge, I don't think there was a kettle sour beer down there, which is actually kind of a funny interlude. Uh, Cinderland's <laughs> out in Pittsburgh. Uh, we were able to mm. meet them while we were down there. And um, they're throwing a festival in July that is focused on mixed culture beer as well. Um, and specifically states that you cannot bring kettle sour beer, which I thought was beautiful to showcase, um, you know, fermentation driven beer and not necessarily a easier path to acid. Wait, what did you say about kettle? I, I missed what you just said. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. So the Cinderlands festival that they're throwing in Pittsburgh in July is to showcase mixed culture beer. Um, you know, Brett beers, wild beers, grisettes, saisons, cool ship beers, fruit beers, you name it, um, all done using mixed culture that we are not allowed to bring kettle sour beer to. I mean, we don't do kettle sour beer, but I thought that was a, a, a fun. So they're saying not not allowed to bring kettle sour because it's too generic? Um, I don't know if too generic, and I'm, I'm not necessarily trying to downput kettle sour beer. It's just it, I think it's the idea is for folks to start highlighting these living beers, these beers that are done with, you know, live live microbe cultures, the microflora is driving this beer, which in a kettle sour beer it is too. You're using bacteria, lactic acid producing bacteria to make that sourness and then you're going to boil it and kill it. Um, I think the idea behind a lot of this push is to have these beers that are not killing that bacteria, that are still alive and forever evolving and changing over time um, showcase, which I think is really cool. Well, wow, that's cool. Hey, Ryan, you, you, you and your, your day job as an editor, I mean, uh, are you seeing, I know you see every beer, but mm -hmm. are, are you seeing like, uh, are you, do you put things in labels or categories um, or are these kind of mixed, you know, living beers, are they not in a category? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we kind of, I kind of have to, right. You know, I mean, there's over 9,000 breweries in the country and, uh, I am getting emails every day from, you know, not, not all of them, obviously, but, uh, a good portion of them and, uh, letting me know of new releases, you know, mo mostly the, the regional, large regional ones or national ones. So I've got to kind of bucket that and I've got to take a look and, assess all of this and see like what are really the trends going on that I need to make our readers aware of in beer. Um, that's kind of how we view things and what, what's going to be most accessible uh, for our readers. So, you know, um, I kind of, and I have to split it too of the beer that I love to drink versus the beer that the majority of craft beer enthusiasts love to drink, um, in the country. So it's definitely a lot of a split, um, you know, talking about living beer, obviously, Sean, like your the, the tagline that's on every can underneath the name of your brewery is a living beer project. And that just, I feel like sums it up like so well that, uh, that's the ethos that you and Amanda have kind of, you know, gone after, but to hear that like Cinderlands is, you know, basically doing a uh another version you know obviously like the the uh the the echelon of that festival would be you know in america is festival of wooden barrel aged beer so to hear that there's more festivals like that that these breweries that are committed to uh living beer um are are kind of like making that a a focus of a festival is is kind of neat to see because you know as as much as you know i i love ipa as much as the next guy but I, I i need diversity in my beer and there's so many other styles and i think we've we've you know kind of hammered that point home here but it's it's nice to see that there is a focus for people um committed to that sort of craft and that that sounds pretty neat the cinderlands festival i think and Ryan, uh, what are you drinking again? Uh, I was, uh, I, I'm drinking as simple as patterns. Um, and Sean, I would actually, uh, one of my questions is, you know, you're, a, as an editor, um, you know, you're formatting on all of your beers. I, I would say I, I, a lot of them are questions and they are all in um, lowercase format, which <laughs> I love. And at the same time as an editor, like, I like, oh, 
is what are they doing but i love that you know like it's tweaking that like mindset typically of you know title casing on something and it, there's poetry there you know i i think you know poetry in motion obviously you know but um i think there's a lot of poetry and creative creativity and artistry that uh you and amanda are both taking with an approach was of every single beer and th- this beer in, in particular it's a spelt lager um which is i i, I it's 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 delicious. It's something like I could see myself drinking this, um, you know, constantly in the summer and, you know, reaching for it a lot, but it's just very bright and bubbly and light and it's not really overbearing. It's just kind of like, you know, a very easy sipper. It's got some crispiness to it, but I'm curious on like how you guys go about your naming convention. Um, because it is very unique and, uh, and I will also say, you know, you mentioned earlier that you're you're not very like talented creatively. Uh, the photography on on this can uh, says by Sean Towers, so I'm going to argue that you are uh, you have some creative talent. Thank you. I, I like taking, I like <laughs> taking a uh, an amateur stab at photography. So I do all the photography <laughs> for uh, for all our social media and everything as well. I think a big part of that is uh, twofold. One is. Amanda and I both haven't really gotten fully to the place yet where we trust anybody else doing the work of what tells our story. Um, and at mm. the same time, I think to wrap several of your points into one, I have, I certainly have OCD um, and I have like a, a painful attention to detail and Amanda does as well. So for us, like every, every choice we make probably uses up way more brain cells than we should have allocated to that but like even just the fact like you mentioned of using lowercase letters is a, a painstaking thought and conversation to me I think the lowercase letters help carry through this relative softness in the beer um, mm. like you said a lot of like the lagers in particular I'm jumping around a little bit but our the first lager we ever made was can it be so simple and that is just Rabbit Hill Pilsner Malt and Czech Saws hops. It's about as simple as a recipe as you could ever do. Um, now we're at a point where we're not even touching the water for our lagers much. Um, so it's, you know, just Atlantic City water, which is surprisingly fantastic. Um, mm. So it's Atlantic City water, untouched, unfiltered, untreated, uh, local malt, one single type of malt and one hop. So once we did that first lager, can it be so simple? That kind of snowballed into the naming platform for all of our loggers. So all of the loggers are as simple as blank and question mark, which, which I love because I am both OCD and also bouncing off a wall all at the same time. So I don't have, I wouldn't be able to, um, I'll use the term pigeonhole and I don't necessarily mean that in a negative connotation, our branding and our imagery into a clean set where you could line all of our cans up and it's the same format and everything looks relatively uniform with different colors. And I, I really commend and applaud the breweries that do that. Um, Cause I think it, it drives home brand recognition and from a uh, shelf visibility standpoint, and again, a brand recognition standpoint is very valuable, but for me, I, I just can't like limit ourselves or put that, that handcuff on our art on the visuals of it. So the, the can it be so simple and then as simple as blank was like the one time we were willing to dive into that world of like, okay, all the loggers will be as simple as blank. And I thought that was so smooth and so easy until we started doing distro in New York City. And our, <laughs> serene, our serene rep was like, what the hell are you doing? Like a beer and your beer menus yeah, were waiting. Hey, <laughs> hey, hold on. We're, we're going to take a short break and we'll be back in a few minutes and keep talking about the scene in Atlantic City on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. 
Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hey, hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. Support us and to become a member at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. So we're talking with The Seed in Atlantic City, New Jersey, South New Jersey. I, I highly recommend if you're in the New York City or Philadelphia area this spring, summer, and fall, just jump on one of those affordable round-trip buses to uh, Atlantic City and uh, spend the day at, at The Seed and a few places that they'll recommend. So um, Sean from The Seed and Ryan Brower from Gear Patrol. So, guys, um, one reason we, Ryan, one reason you introduced me to Sean was that uh, he's buying malt from Rabbit Hill. And we, and we did a number of, of spotlights on craft malt this year and an interview with Hillary of um, Rabbit Hill. So, Sean, tell us the, the local ingredient connection, how you met Hillary, and um, more of that, because you said you just made a, a very simple lager with, with just the Pilsner malt from Rabbit Hill. I think one of those, several of those, she won the gold medal for the Craft Malt Club too. So yeah, this year Rabbit Hill's Pilsner malt took home uh, best in show, I believe, at the Craft Malt Cup, which was pretty awesome. Uh, we we love their malt; it's fantastic. They're raw grains as well. Um, but yeah, so when Amanda was working at Tuckahoe and I was helping out there, we were starting to do some mixed culture work, and um, along that same thread of how we view saison if we were going to do it with something other than local ingredients, it really wouldn't speak to the story we were trying to tell with that beer. So we got linked up with Hillary through Tuckahoe, which was a great opportunity that we certainly wouldn't have had otherwise. And it's, it's really just grown from there. So as of December of 2021, uh, 41% of the malt we had used to date was grown and malted at Rabbit Hill Farms. And this year, during 2020, we're, we're looking to get that pretty well above 50, if we can. Um, so like I mentioned earlier, all the all the saisons, all the lagers are all Rabbit Hill malt, but that also sprinkles to every other style we do. So all the British pub beers we do, all the IPAs we do, all the stouts we do, not that it's a lot of them, um, they all have at least a couple bags of Rabbit Hill malt in there so that it can be incorporated into everything that we do. But Hillary's been a great resource because... Uh, man and I just met with her a few months ago um, with Blair as well, her brother, about growing different heritage grains that might be a bit unique and not easy to find on the market that could lead lead to like some really interesting flavors or fermentation profiles in beer. So we've talked about, you know, emmer wheat and some of these um, not necessarily unique to the, the bread or beer making world, but unique to the consumer basis, er, uh, heritage grains or heirloom grains that might be an interesting thing to start bringing into the local malt scene. Yeah. And then just, in, you know, in your planning, I mean, I, I know that there's ways to 
there's measurements of 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 the malt. I mean, how how much of that are you, uh, you know, depending on when you, when you're buying these craft malts? Because that that used to be the criticism is that you didn't know what you were getting with craft malt. Um, yeah, certainly. Um, the answer is un- probably unfortunately less than we should be. Uh, we don't pay much attention to the COAs on the certificate of analysis is on any of these. Um, we actually haven't even really asked Hillary too often for them, although she always gets them because they are way more on top of that than we are. Um, and that just speaks to the way we brew beer. But to be quite frank, we've actually had a lot more issues with grain that we've bought from bulk suppliers than our local malt, which like you mentioned um, previously was the complete opposite. So we've had, uh, some significant efficiency issues with with base malts bought from elsewhere. Um, some of the more you know homogenized bulk growers. It's been a pretty bad growing season the end of last year um, into this year. And one of the nice things about working with a local grower and not just a local grower, but working directly with the grower is we can hop on the phone and you know chat with Hillary or chat with Blair and talk to them about the grain and see what how they're seeing it grow or how they saw it malt or what they're thinking of the way the protein content came out and how the friability is. And it goes on and on and on. Um, and that's just not something you have access to with some of these big producers. Like uh, Brees is the easy one. Everyone from home brewers to professional brewers have used Brees malt at some point. Like it's not easy to hop on the phone with the person that grew the two row barley for, you know, brewers malt that Brees is malting and selling, but we can hop on the phone with Hillary. No problem and talk about what we should adjust for our next batch, which is absolutely invaluable. Well, that's an amazing endorsement for Rabbit Hill um, Farmhouse Malt and for Craft Malt. Um, uh, you know, again, you, you're making beers with with this local Craft Malt. I think about Kent Falls in Connecticut, because I know he's got like Thrall Family Farm and, and uh, you know, Valley Malt near him. Um, he has made beers like a Pilsner that were specifically built around a, a, a local barley. Um, do, do you feel like that's the direction you're going? And do you know other brewers that are working the same way, like that closely with their, their monsters? Yeah, certainly. Um, we actually have a, a beer in a tank right now that uh, we brewed about a month and a half or two months ago. That was, uh, it's a lager, a Rogan beer brewed with 60% rye, a single rye varietal from Rabbit Hill, um, where there was a sprinkle of their light Munich and their Pilsner malt in there as well. Um, but yeah, that's certainly something that we want to be showcasing. I mean, for us, we could brew the same lagers over and over and over again with the same malt and, you know, change a hop or change the fermentation profile and get these different beers. That's super cool. Um, but for us, it's nice to be able to use malt, like one of the main ingredients or grain in general, even raw grains, excuse me, in that same vein. So I, I certainly see us driving, um, driving, you know, the, the, sh- the showcase or the spotlight on local malt or more specifically like adjunct malt. So we even talked to Hillary about growing perennial rices. I mean, I love rice lagers and rice saisons. It adds a really nice crispness and dryness yeah. to, to beers. Um, but I think that's something that we'd like to do a lot more of is showcasing the grain in, in simple grist and simple beers. Um, and I think a lot of people are jumping onto that. Again, it gets back to the point we made earlier that I think there's not as much of a negative connotation on local grain anymore. Um, one person in particular that we've actually gotten to speak with a, a bit over the past month, um, both down in Georgia at Good Words Little Beer Festival, as well as at Propagation is John Branding. Uh, him and his wife run Wheatland Springs Farm and Brewery in Virginia, and they're growing a lot of their grains on site. They're working very heavily with university partners to trial new cultivars, um, to work out the true analytics of some of these um, potentially formally unused for brewing grains and just really driving a sense of home. What I love about what John and the folks at Wheatland are doing or they're, they're, they're kind of branding their own beer, which is I, I guess in a way what I think everybody should be doing instead of trying to mimic um, mimic other folks and clone other folks, just draw inspiration from them, but still do your own thing. So like John and his group make a bunch of Saisons, but they don't call them Saison, they call them Piedmont Ales. So it's their own thing using their own grain, their land beers, their beers of the farm. And I think that's a pretty neat direction that I'm seeing more and more people follow. And that's certainly 
I mean, we don't have our own farm or our own property uh, yet, maybe, but as of now we don't, but it's also that point is kind of used as an opportunity for us to work with new growers or new farmers. So we work with Rabbit Hill exclusively for local malt, but we work with a lot of other growers for unique ingredients. We brew with a lot of flowers, especially in our saisons. We prefer, prefer a floral character. So we work with as many new growers as we can. And it's just trying to learn as much about your local region and drive as much flavor from your local region as you can. And I think a lot more folks are doing that. And Kent Falls has certainly been, you know, a, a, a pioneer might be a strong word, but I, I think they have been a bit of a pioneer for that over, over the last several years. Well, wow, that's cool. You, you really took me where I was. My next question Maybe Ryan can can weigh in also. Um, thinking about sour beer and you know getting away from that, thinking of your own proprietary term or like Suarez mm -hmm. as a country beer, and Hill Farmstead is trying to trademark Farmstead uh, for his beers. Um, why is it so complicated? Why can't we just call things lambic? Is there another term that either one of you guys would say? these beers are, are more like traditionally i can let you jump in first ryan oh boy yeah thanks that. sean <laughs> um <laughs> yeah i mean i think I, I i love that fact that you know suarez and you know the country beers like that that's just i i i i am a fan of call something what it's from you know like I, I think Augie Carton does a pretty good job of that uh, in at Carton, um, where you know he he calls it an East Coast IPA or you know a New Jersey IPA or um, he's got a couple other uh -huh. ones there that that are that are escaping me. But really sticking to like it was inspired by this, but it's of where we are. You know some of that stuff he does with Plan B. Um, there's that beer, that collab beer they do. I can't remember what style they, they, they coined for that, but I just think that's, that's beautiful. And we need to add that bit of, I think, you know, like you mentioned earlier, Sean, like you're seeing this is not necessarily out of the box. You're, you're seeing it as in the box of the old world of beer. And I think we need to you know, that's probably one area where we need to maybe get a little back into the box and just start to call things where they're coming from, you know, um, you know, farm ale, you know, like I I'm okay with that stuff. I, I don't necessarily think we need to add labels. I think where it makes it difficult is the education part. Like we talked about earlier is you've got to, if you're going to go that route, you've got to really be able to train your, your taproom staff on how to explain that properly to the consumer, because that's, that's the problem I think where, you know, maybe in Europe people understand that there's a lot longer of a history and they expect those sorts of things. But in America, we, we like our labels and we are, we, we expect things to be neat and clean in that regard. So um, I think that's probably where the issue comes, but you know, I'll let you speak to that kind of Sean. Yeah, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And from like a taproom education standpoint, uh, that's one of the biggest things we do at our, our staff meetings with our tasting room staff is not necessarily go over, you know, scheduling and this, that and the other thing, but going over proper pours, like what a, what a pour should look like. We, we use several different types of glassware depending on mm -hmm. the beer at the brewery. Uh, in our region in South Jersey, it's not uncommon to have to answer questions while your beer didn't get served to you in a shaker pint glass filled to the top with absolutely yep. no foam. Um, but along the lines of that world of education, um, we, we talk a lot with our staff about styles and, and the names of our beer, even why they're named a certain way, why we're calling it a pale lager and not a Pilsner. Um, but back to the Lambic question, like I think people are a lot more interested in what they're drinking nowadays um, I think people care a bit more about the story and about the history and about the inspiration. And I think for a lot of brewers, um, it's just a simple way to like really honor the, the, the history and the longstanding culture that was built around some of these European beers and not be 
stealing that and uh, just saying like, hey, we, we did it too, or we did it better. So here's our Lambic or here's our Goose. Um, so I think it's important for us in America, since we are at such a different point, like we don't have this really in-depth length of beer culture in America, where America is known for, you know, over the top gluttony. And I hate to say it, but it's true. But like, <laughs> you've got, you know, like Colin's drunk, like driven this Kolsch culture where everyone makes their Kolsch and you have Kolsch service. That's like, you're just going to hang out with your friends and the beer is kind of ancillary and you're just hanging out and talking. The beer should be great because if you run a brewery professionally, that's what you should be doing. But like everything is surrounded around a culture. Um, and that's been some of my favorite interviews actually to listen to or read um, from Chris Lorig up at Notch and how much they have driven a brewery yeah. around culture and not necessarily around like this untapped ratings world. And I think that's one of the most important things and one of the coolest things that I'm seeing a turn of in America right now is that you've got a lot of breweries that are focusing on the culture around their brand and the culture around their story and the culture around their beer. Um, and I think that goes hand in hand with both paying homage to what's been done ahead of you and also being respectful that that is theirs and you should be doing your own thing. Well, that's cool. Now switching last thing, uh, British pub style beers. It, it just turns out that the other day I, I downloaded uh, Martin mm. Connell's Amber and Black which I don't know when he wrote it, but he was basically trying to, to say, hey, there's IPAs and everyone's excited about craft beer, but let's really talk about the great British styles. How did you get interested in brewing those? I remember like up in Milford, New Jersey, there was the ship, mm. Ships Inn uh, that was only making uh, like cask-style beers. How did you get interested in, in British pub beers? Because um, I'm like I said again, Martin Cornell book, Amber and Black, worthy read yeah certainly um and i could i could credit some of the readings that amanda and i have done but even more so to be perfectly honest um i'll credit our actually very dear friends and uh brewery owners sam and gina up at bond place in bethlehem um they've got quite a quite a reverence for british pub beers for the english beer culture and they've basically built this small little community pub um, and focused on, you know, dark mild and ordinary bitter, uh, Nemo mm -hmm. and Mui. And one of the first, and Sam is one of our oldest friends in the beer industry. And one of the first times we were out at Bond Place, just drinking these beers that were, you know, like we knew what we were getting ourselves into, but just to experience the pub culture. And I'll never forget every last person that walked in to Bond Place the day, the first day we were there. Sam greeted and he knew them by name and there was just such a sense of community around what was happening there. And I think, uh, I don't mean to put words or thoughts in their heads or mouths, but I think that can be akin to their respect for how that culture is driven in England, in Britain, in London. Um, and I think we came back with a, Amanda and I came back with a new respect for that world of beer again, because of the culture that, you know, just not necessarily by happenstance, but by design, um, whether it's consciously or subconsciously follows along with those styles of beer that are low alcohol made for continued consumption, uh, consumption, sorry, they're, they're balanced, they're easy, they're not over the top in any regard. Um, and it all gets back to the beer being delicious and good, but also ancillary to the point of your outing, which is, you know, to spend time with friends and loved ones during conversation i can uh sorry to hop in but i can second that i i had uh during the break i cracked open uh all tucked away it's a pub porter that the seed has right now uh it's 3.8 percent and it's brewed with dandelion root it is uh probably the most uh intricate porter i've ever had it it's got like it's almost like a a combination between a roush beer and a porter it's got a bit of like bite to it which porters tend to American porters tend to be very like chocolatey and like kind of thin. And this is a, a little thicker mouthfeel and it's just really got like this like bite to it that is like, wow. Okay. Yeah. I'm sitting in a pub in England and this is delicious. Yeah. Thank you. That's awesome. Um, that's kind of the fun world that we hadn't really melded yet was the dandelion roots by, by far not a common or historically accurate ingredient in pub beer. 
Um, but we actually got to try a beer, and I forget who makes it now, unfortunately. Uh, when we were up for opening bash in mm. New York City, that was done. It was uh, a little English dark mild, but all the water that was used to brew that beer was um, water that was steeped on juniper branches in their hot liquor tank, and then they carried mm. through with the brew day. And it just had this super intricate, unique background. Um, so that was something that Amanda and I were really excited to do was basically just to slam that, you know, local forageable Saison philosophy into a more traditional style. So dandelion roots, excuse me, a really fun ingredient for us. It's got this like really deep, like you mentioned, like kind of smoky, like mm. chicory coffee almost note to it that we thought would play really well in a porter. And when we wanted to do this little pub porter at 3.8%, there's some extra tricks that you have to try to employ so that it doesn't come across as thin and watery. Um, and we thought that would play really well. So I'm glad you, I'm glad you like yeah, it. Like yeah. Great job. Just for our homebrews. Cause when I think of dandelion roots, I, I think of farm based homebrews and, and I, I can see it as a bittering agent. Right. But how, how do you use it? At what point do you use it in, in the brewing process. Yeah. So we, we roast it at home. Um, we don't do enough with that kind of adjunct world that we have any kind of commercial oven at the brewery. So we roast them at home and then they're added in like the last five minutes before flame out just in a bag. And we don't let them steep for too long. Um, just so that it doesn't get too, too much of that, like super bitter, like herbal bitter character coming through. Yeah. If you ever get into distilling, I know, I know a guy, um, they make a, a very bitter, dandelion wine that's really best used for like a you know a dash of it in a cocktail um gosh who is that Raphael lyons oh yeah you know him. he's in yeah, Bushwick. yeah yeah the honey bar <laughs> yeah yeah but hey guys this has been a great show um ryan you want to wrap it up in a last question um we could definitely <laughs> go on for hours and i and We'll definitely talk with you again, Sean. There's a lot more we can go. Yeah, go I apologize. Into. I tend to talk a lot. No, how about this? What What am I missing? What What science question did I not ask, or or do you n not want to talk about science anymore? <laughs> uh, no, I'm good not talking about science. Science is my day job. Beers, beers, the magic, the unicorn art side of things. Cool, Ryan. Any uh, last words or a question? Um. You know, I mean, I, I don't want to drag this on too long, but, you know, I think, you know, Sean, you've got this philosophy, you and Amanda, of, um, you know, using as many local ingredients as possible. And like you said, we're, we're starting to see more breweries do that. And that's that's the old world way of doing it. And maybe, you know, back before Prohibition, that was the way of doing it here as well, because they brought all of that over. And Prohibition, obviously, like, screwed everything and pooch that and you know that that's a whole conversation for another time but um i'm curious if you know is there a bit of pride there too with with you know you're both new jersey natives and new jersey being the garden state um is is there a bit of of that that plays into it as well that you know hey new jersey's not just you know this like place where uh you know people from Long Island come and they party at seaside and they get too wasted and you know, that's Jersey shore. Um, so I don't know, that's always been like a little chip on my shoulder being a New Jersey native, like no, New Jersey's more than that. Um, so I don't know if that factors into with like the philosophy of like, look at everything that this place has to offer in mashed in between like two of the biggest, like metropolitan centers in the country. Oh, yeah, a, a thousand percent. I mean, Amanda and I both grew up in Vernon, New Jersey, up in Sussex County. So like what we know New Jersey as now living down in southern New Jersey for a bit over a decade is, uh, you know, both sides of the coin. But it's the Appalachian Mountains, it's hiking, it's the Appalachian Trail, it's cow pastures and farms and fields mm -hmm. and hills. And then down here is these beautiful estuaries, uh, you know, marshlands, water, the ocean. I think when so many people think of New Jersey, like you mentioned, it's it's Jersey Shore, it's Seaside, mm -hmm. it's Bar A, or it's like flying into <laughs> Newark and, and oil refineries and then getting into New York City as quickly as possible or getting onto the turnpike and getting wherever you need to go as quickly as possible. So I think that is certainly a, a huge thing for us. It's like we, we've grown up here our entire lives. I mean, and I both never lived anywhere outside of New Jersey. And it's just absolutely beautiful to us. 
Um, and to showcase that and to like share that with people is huge. The two, we've actually done two collabs so far mm. with the referent. Um, the name of the, that beer, both of beers is No Place for Literature. So it's No Place for Literature, Volume 1 and Volume 2, um, which is an old William mm-hmm. Carlos Williams conversation um, where he was basically told, you know, New Jersey is no place for literature. Come back to Europe. Um, and that's been a really cool, like you said, chip on our shoulder kind of sticking point that, no, it certainly is a place for literature. It certainly is a place for art, for you know, agriculture for natural beauty. It's not, you know, it's not fist pumping at the beach and driving past smog. Like there's so much more that this state has to offer. And if we can be a small part of showcasing that for people, that's certainly one of the drivers in what we're doing. Wow. This has been a great show guys. And I'll tell you definitely Ryan, thanks for the intro and Sean next summer when I'm driving down to Cape May, New Jersey, I'm going to I'm going to stop in at The Seed in Atlantic City. I'll probably also stop at Wildwood's Barbecue to see my friends uh in uh, North Wildwood, New Jersey, which is a great barbecue restaurant down there. So thanks so much thanks to Armin and Alex our crew, Armin the engineer, Armin Spengen and Alex Tran our producing intern. Big thanks to Ryan and Sean for joining me here on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni, I'm the host on Beer Sessions Radio. We'll catch you next time. All right. Thanks so much guys. Woo. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.